Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to Castaway, FIS's podcast. Uh, we have a full house this week. Returning, uh, we have Alex uh, from home, Kerry back from the United States on his holiday, uh, Tom all the way from Singapore, and we have our special guest, Peter, from our air freight desk. Uh, hello, guys. Thank you for joining. Hi, Chris. Good to be back. Morning, morning. Cool. Let's dive straight into the news stories then. Uh, Kerry, you've had a, a week off. Let's start with you then, shall we? You've got a story this week about the uh, about mining in Brazil. Uh, yeah, I've got an article from mining.com that is discussing the fact that uh, despite Brazil's COVID-19 spike, the Minister of Mines is very optimistic about supporting production for the second half of the year. He said that despite the COVID-19 spikes, uh, he expects mining to continue to increase in Brazil. Uh, he pointed out that uh, revenue from mineral production in the first half of 2020 was actually 1% higher than in the first half of 2019. That's probably not saying very much given Vale's disaster last year with the, uh, with the dam. But one of the interesting things in this article was that he suggested the government was going to help increase mining capacity by perhaps opening new areas up to mining very rapidly uh, in the second half of the year. He gave no real details on that, but I think it would be very, very interesting to watch what happens in this space, um, especially when paired with Ballet's ongoing rather bullish forecasts uh, for their iron ore production. I think, uh, I think it could be interesting to see how the government supports that production increase for the second half of the year. If you see something in, in, the, in South America with the, the virus outbreak, it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. So this is quite an announcement to say in the kind of context of, of the situation they're in. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You know, uh, regrettably, Brazil has seen, you know, 76,000 deaths so far, uh, second only behind the, the U.S. Uh, and uh, in particular, it's seen some hot spots break out in some of the key mining areas, at least for iron ore. Um, so this is a very, very bullish announcement to make by a government minister um, who interestingly uh, himself tested positive for COVID-19 back in March and recovered, thankfully. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that the government intends to fully support the mining companies in Brazil in their effort to, uh, to ramp up production. In the Sorry, Kerry, in your opinion, do you think he's, he's towing the party line or this is, this is a genuine, um, you know, educated opinion? It's very, very difficult to read into anything that the Bolsonaro government says, let's be honest. Um, you know, it could be pure populism trying to uh, trying to gather some support, saying that they will boost the economy in the second half of the year. I think that it it's certainly worth watching because it means the government is in no way going to stand in the way of increasing production in the second half of the year. Let's let's phrase it that way. And I think as well with what's happened to the oil complex, you know, if you think about where um, Brazil's export dollars come from, it's oil, it's all, um, you know, all, uh, you know, oil has taken a big hit this year. Uh, so, you know, they need, they need iron ore revenues to prop up sort of the, the government balance sheet, as it were. Um, so they, you know, they have to do everything that they can to try and support it uh, where they can. So I, I think there, there will be something behind it, but, how yeah. realistic it is, is, is yeah. 
I, I think in the sense that they, they certainly don't intend to take any actions to slow down mining um, is, is the key takeaway here. And they will help it in any way they can um, from a political perspective. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the notable story here. Cool. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, let's move on to uh, Alex's story. You've got one about LNG. Yeah, so my story is from Bloomberg. Um, obviously, LNG has been quite a sort of hot topic, especially for brokers and traders alike over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and it looks like the LNG traders are taking a leaf out of the oil traders uh, book and they are looking to, well, well, and that being the story in the fuel at sea, well, prices languish near historic lows, um, you know, in, in, the, in the chance that you can then profit when demand sort of comes back. And the article's got a quote from Paul Wogan, who's CEO of Gaslog, saying, when you look at September, October, November, we definitely see opportunities for price arbitrage. And, you know, there's, there's no surprise there. There's currently 27 LNG vessels globally uh, acting as floating storage as of Wednesday this week, a summer record and a 50% jump from a week ago. Um, and that's according to Rebecca Cheer uh, at Kepler. Um, and the article goes on to say, this current armada is due mainly to logistical delays caused by buyers struggling to make room for the arrivals as they're sitting on high inventories due to the pandemic. I mean, not exactly anything new, but this is obviously coming into play now. And it could be as many as 50 cargoes floating by late October compared to 33 the same time last year. And, you know, this, the traders are only going to go out of their way to take advantage of those arbitrage uh, uh, opportunities. And that's pointed out by James Waddle in the article, who is an analyst at Energy Aspects. Um, you know, floating storage for LNG typically tends to be limited to about three months in order for, you know, to avoid uh, the degrading of the cargo. Um, and that's an, another quote from CEO of, of Flex LNG, who is Mr. Kalilev. Um, so, you know, there, there is a time limit to how long these, these, these vessels can float at sea. This will all play into the hands of the LNG traders and could add an extra dimension to any arbitrage in the, in the oil market itself. Yeah. Let's just hope that for those people who are using this uh, as a trade tool, that their freight costs don't suddenly spike up and they're suddenly looking at out-of-pocket without any increasing... I mean, that is a risk. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, you only really benefit from the floating storage if you're one of the larger guys, right? And if you can shift cargoes around to meet their obligations. Otherwise, you know, it's a, it can be an expensive uh, thing to do. Yeah, it's one of the ones which has changed in terms of, we, we saw several weeks ago the, the tanker rates spike because of all the people needing that uh, floating storage, taking all the chips out of out of supply. If that's obviously pushed a lot of cargoes in oil, and oil to be discharged as those rates have pushed up. So... Hopefully for them, this isn't something which which plays into that. But thank you, Alex, for that story. Um, let's move on to to myself before finishing with with Tom's story. Mine's just a short story to point out what's happened in the EU with their uh, their deal, which they've agreed, which is a 750 billion euro package. Uh, they obviously had a, a problem over the weekend trying to agree this. Uh, the 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 known frugal five that's uh, Finland, Austria, Denmark, Netherlands, and kind of Sweden were not too happy with the, the amount of money on offer uh, in the original outlining of the deal, but uh, they have finally agreed uh, this package. Uh, a lot of this will go to economically weaker member states, uh, around 500 billion package uh, originally proposed by, uh, I think it was Macron and uh, Merkel, didn't quite uh, get through, but uh, they've got one now, which is 390 billion for, for those economically weakened uh, members of the European Union. Uh, but there's other 
complications, uh, technical detail in that, such as an emergency break, which was insisted by the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. But it looks to be that um, the EU is definitely taking a very active stance in trying to uh, recover economically and uh, induce some uh, stimulus in the economy for something which has been somewhat languishing languishing quite a lot since the uh, 2008 crisis. So well, 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 that's incredibly positive, I think, uh, that, that they've managed to push through this deal. It's also very interesting to see the Dutch having taken over the, the, the former British role of, let's call it, the bad Europeans um, in terms of insisting on an emergency break and, uh, and, uh, and, and quibbling about how much money should really be going. Uh, into the pot. So uh, that'll be an interesting trend to watch. Yeah, this is a, an article on the FT and you, you as you pointed out, uh, Kerry, it, it goes into all the different bits about uh, Margaret Thatcher's rebate and how the other countries are now wanting a higher rebate percentage than this. And they've actually given some more away to get this deal through. So lots of other de- wheeling and dealing between the different countries to get this through. But it does look, as you say, as a, a positive Point and it was definitely taken as positive in in the oil markets. I think there was something in, um, in the Economist uh, last week as well, uh, just looking at how uh, markets are recovering in terms of their um, sort of return to work um, versus where they were uh, before this all happened. And actually, the EU is sort of outperforming uh, pretty much most of the Western developed world. Um, so the EU, in terms of its Recovery timeline is actually looking quite strong, so hopefully that stimulus will uh, will sort of keep it keep it going on that on that uh, trajectory as well. That's good news. And Tom, let's finish with your story, which is about some uh, radical Chinese market reforms. Yeah. So from me today, uh, an article on Bloomberg about uh, one of the Chinese equity markets known as the Starboard, uh, which is a market that was started a year ago uh, for mid cap. Uh, Chinese firms uh, seeking financing. And the aim was um, to um, offer less red tape uh, to smaller mid-cap companies to raise financing onshore in China and try and prevent them from going uh, to the US where they had traditionally done so once uh, Chinese companies got to sort of IPO scale. Traditionally, equities have been heavily regulated in China after a couple of serious boom and busts in the last 10 years. Um, And uh, the protections in place have been there to stop rampant speculation and sort of retail investors getting overly hurt. Um, But this new market uh, was set up uh, and it it seems to be uh, fairly... um, a fairly well thought through uh, idea in in light of what's happening with uh, China and US relations at the moment and the likelihood of, you know, potentially Congress saying that Chinese companies can't be listed on US exchange any longer. Um, So they sort of seem to have given themselves some natural protection. And it seems that, you know, they may start to deregulate some of the main, the bigger exchanges um, in the the not too distant future as well. So Chinex, which is the sort of tech uh, market based in Shenzhen, uh, with a market value of 9.3 trillion US dollars is is in line to be deregulated a little bit as well. So it's just sort of an interesting look at how China has sort of protected itself a little bit with some forethought around creating a less 
less stringently regulated marketplace for its own companies. Um, and you know the the high profile and the reason this is sort of in the news this week is that Jack Ma's latest company, which is called Ant Group, which is a mobile payments. Uh, company uh, with a valuation of 200 billion US dollars is listing on this uh, star board this week, which will obviously be the, the biggest um, listing on that um, on that exchange and one of the biggest listings uh, in recent memory uh, anywhere. Um, so uh, interesting to see what China are doing around their own equities markets and regulation and, and how they are looking to insulate themselves a little bit from sort of U.S. dominance uh, of financing. Yeah, it was good. Uh, another news story coming out uh, this morning was the Chinese accusing the U.S. of forcing them to close one of their consulates in, in the U.S. So it is definitely escalating the tensions between those two countries. And as we've talked about previously uh, for the last couple of episodes, China's push to uh, be seen as the, the number one on the global scene against the U.S. is definitely a vein of a lot of things that we've been seeing uh, over the past few months, especially of this virus crisis. But uh, thank you guys for those news stories. Let's push into our markets and see what we've been been seeing. Uh, let me kick off as the oil market. We've been slowly pushing up. Uh, now we are above that $44 mark. I know we were noting last week we were 43, so slowly pushing up again. It does seem that the uh, hedge funds have either all taken a synchronized holiday or haven't been doing too much uh, in terms of adding positions. They were up slightly from last week. There was a 21 million uh, barrels extra of purchases in the main six oil contracts last week. That's up to 24 million this week. Um, so you can see that the net long positions is, is around about 642 million barrels, which is very much in line with the mean of the last seven years. So nothing particularly exciting happening, uh, but does seem to be slightly moving up uh, especially if you're looking technically at uh, some of the technical reports we were sending out today, uh, definitely noting that we're going to test the the upside of the range that we've been in for, for quite a while. So marginally up for the for the oil market. Uh, Kerry, what we've seen on the, the dry freight side? A much more bearish outlook in the past week. Um, the physical market has fallen very sharply on the Capes and the Panamax, with the Cape Spot 5TC average falling nearly 3000 bucks compared to this time last week. Uh, yesterday at 22635 while the Panamax has fallen around $1,600 to $11,400. Uh, the paper moves have largely mirrored the physical fall on the nearby months, um, with the August case, for example, trading down about $3,000 as well to $15,650 today, uh, which you can see on our live pricing app. And it's worth noting that it is just those nearby contracts getting hit. Um, the Q4 contract on the Capes has only shifted down about 300 bucks in the past week, uh, holding very, very steady, uh, trading 16250 this morning. But, uh, but those nearby months, uh, particularly the August, uh, getting hit very, very hard and also maintaining a huge discount to the spot, you know, keep, keeping a consistent $7,000 discount to the uh, spot 5TC average, which is probably worth noting as we're only uh, about a week away from, from pricing on that August contract. And Tom, what we've seen on our bullish baby, the iron ore? Um, well, I mean, if you had to look at um, pricing this time last week versus pricing today, uh, the Augie contract was 108.40 a week ago, and it's 
as of about an hour ago was 107.50, uh, but three hours ago it was 109.50. Um, so it had been pushing higher. It's sort of corrected a little bit this afternoon. Um, but the Q4 contract, 99.60 last week, 99.65 today, um, not no real change. So it's it's been a um, strange week. Um, there's been a lot of volatility within that week, albeit there doesn't appear to be much genuine price movement in terms of week on week. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, Vale made uh, well, the three big miners gave uh, some um, uh, market information this week uh, around their performance and forecast for the rest of the year. Um, so it's sort of been a bit of Vale roulette. Uh, waiting to see what Vale were going to say and people were sort of jumping the gun. and um, So that's sort of driven the volatility in the week, but no real genuine price action. But to drill into that a little bit further, um, Rio, Vale and BHP have all maintained their yearly production targets. So for Rio, that's somewhere between 320 and 330 million tonnes. Um, we uh, sort of, by our tracking, think they will comfortably hit that. Uh, BHP announced full-year results uh, for um, the year 2020 at the end of June, hit target of 248 million tonnes uh, and are still maintaining for 21, uh, range of 244 to 256. But the, the, the market mover this week, as, as ever for the last few weeks, has been Vale, uh, who are still maintaining a target of 310 to 330 million tonnes for the year. Now, what that means in reality is so for the first half of the year, they've delivered 127 million tonnes. They're saying that they'll make uh, Q3 uh, 75 million tonnes, which means in Q4, they'll need to hit at least 108 million tonnes of iron ore delivered. Almost all of that going into China. Last year, Q4 was a record of 100 million. Um, so they've got to beat previous records by 8 million tonnes. Um, so I think, you know, they're still maintaining they hit that. And as we discussed at the start, it doesn't appear there'll be any sort of interruption from the government. Um, but whether they're actually physically able to do that or not is is uh, another question. So we're sort of in the market from the conversations we're having feel that sort of 280 to 290 million tonnes is more realistic. But, you know, Vale are still maintaining that they can hit that 300 uh, to, sorry, 310 million tonnes. Um, so we'll see. In terms of uh, other bits and bobs that have been going on, sort of the things that have been interesting, we've seen um, steel inventory build and build and build, and we're now at a stage where warehouses in Hangzhou are actually rejecting new inventory. Um, so we're, see, we're, we're expecting to see a strong steel inventory build this week, uh, and also port stocks we're expected to see increase this week as well. So traditionally, we would expect, you know, with that strong build we'd expect some sort of price correction of fall um but who knows um that said we have seen a you know a bit of a drop off this afternoon um on the onshore contract uh with a big reduction in open interest so eight percent reduction in open interest this afternoon uh going into the last few minutes of the close of the onshore session so um it may be the market has run out of bullets for now and it's, it's taking a bit of breathing space uh, and digesting that physical information from from Vale, BHP uh, and Rio. But, but yeah, price action fairly limited on paper, but in reality it's been a, been a crazy couple of days.
Yeah, Vale definitely got to get their skates on to be able to uh, fulfil that uh, that pledge of of amount that they're going to be putting into to China. But uh, talking very much so. talking of what people have said and what they do contradicting in terms of the supply side for oil, uh, a news story this morning I think it was out of, of Reuters saying that uh, Iraq have definitely not been sticking to what they've promised for the uh, OPEC plus cut agreement. Uh, shock and surprise. Uh, it's July exports. <laughs> were 2.7 million barrels today, uh, barrels a day, according to Refinitiv Icon data, uh, which is somewhat similar to its June figures, when they should have been cutting around about 1.09 million barrels per day as per the agreement. So if anyone's out there wondering why their numbers don't add up, um, I don't think you have to look too far past Iraq for the, for the answer to that. Uh, in terms of other things which you're looking at on the supply side, we noticed last week that uh, OPEC were looking to relax their agreement, their cut agreement. So you now got around about an extra 2 million barrels per day uh, of, of wiggle room. They're moving down from 9.7 to 7.7. So you should see that supply start to come into the market, but obviously counteracted by increasing demand from uh, countries coming out of lockdown, needing some more. But another point on the supply side for products, which is interesting, is that the, we, we noted all that kind of increase in oil imports to China a lot of that's been going through refineries. They've been pushing through uh, high levels of that. Their, their throughput through uh, domestic refining is around about 14.14 million barrels per day, a 9% rise. And because of this, they have high levels of stocks, which they're now looking to try to offload into the market, which I think is a benefit to them, and especially the fact that a lot of other countries are looking to cut exports. So there may be an opening there for the Chinese market without necessarily harming too much on, on the price-wise. Uh, but Kerry, what we've seen on the, the supply side, which has been influencing these, these dry freight trenches? Well, you know, for the last couple of weeks on the supply side and, and the Cape market, for sure, you've been seeing uh, a lot of delays caused by bad weather in Australia. That's been building up congestion. Uh, that's been coupled for some time now with crew change problems around the world that had actually led to many vessels being made unacceptable uh, to call it Australian ports. And this had caused the recent spike in C5 rates. Both of those problems have been easing during the past week, uh, leading to much better vessel supply in the Pacific. Uh, conversely, we've seen a lot of bad weather in Guinea, uh, which has prevented a lot of the West Africa Cape loadings, diverting plenty of that tonnage towards Brazil and rather allowing Vale and CSN to sit back and, and just let the rates drop on the, uh, the C3 Brazil-China route. And then in terms of, of demand, anything to, to note there? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of the demand drivers in the Pacific, I think it's worth noting that a lot of the Aussie coal cargoes are now being moved on Panamaxes rather than the Capes. Uh, this is actually because the discharge port optionality is a lot better with the Panamaxes and the Chinese have imposed quotas for imports uh, of coal at certain ports. Um, in Atlantic, the demand was hit by the bad weather in Guinea, uh, as I already mentioned. Um, having said that, you know, it's interesting to watch what's happening out of Brazil, because as we've already discussed, Vale made this really bullish announcement, insisting again, they will further ramp up production and they will meet their production targets. I won't rehash what Tom's already said, but, you know, it's worth noting that while we're seeing the nearby paper get hit, with people liquidating their longs against the suddenly weaker physical market, you know, if Vale comes close to meeting their target, we should see a firmer market, especially on that C3 moving forward. I do think that's a reason why you're not seeing those back end contracts 
get hit nearly as hard on the uh, on the paper for the caves. Cool. And some final points for me on the demand side. One thing to note is uh, Saudi Arabia are a lot importing a lot of fuel and oil to power their uh, their power production for everyone's air conditioning because people can't go on holiday and it's about to come into kind of midsummer. So they've it's been an unusual flow of oil and fuel oil into Saudi Arabia, which hasn't usually been there. And also to note the API predicting a build in US crude stocks this week. So you'll see the real data coming out at 3.30 today for the, the EIA. But let's move on to our main feature, uh, looking at air freight. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, thank you for inviting me. I think uh, of all the markets, this, this, is, this is one of the the most peculiar, especially over the last three months, because it's almost reacted in reverse of everything else going on, um, which has really sort of been driving the interest that we've had, uh, especially in the recent weeks um, across the market, across physicals and financials and all over the place, really. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to just to go into what the market is, just to make sure everyone has an appreciation, it's, it's incredibly complex. But one of the key features of this sort of market ever since it was indexed you know, as recently as 2016, um, you have a fundamental event immediately having an impact in the in the air freight price. And we saw this really in, in how the prices reacted at the start of this year, um, off of the back of a 2019 slack market. Um, so you saw a pretty dismal market picture at the start of Q1. All of a sudden completely change around the end of February. Um, just to give an example, one of our lanes, Shanghai to Europe, um, going up 401% from low to high. So finishing around the middle of May um, at $11.18 a kilo, because that's how we measure things in the Everett world. It's per kilogram because it's a very expensive commodity. Um, and essentially, to, to put it in the perspective of a, a listener, that would be a 747 freighter going from you know, 220,000 uh, a charter to, uh, to 1.1 million in the space of two months. So huge movements. But in terms of how this, what this actually means for the market, um, and I think to give an education to everyone listening, you work on a three-way basis. So you have uh, your airlines, which are supplying capacity into the market, and they have a complex procedure, and this will be very regionally focused. But obviously, you're, you're dealing with specific airports and, uh, and origins and destinations. And they will feed in capacity to essentially traders, intermediaries, freight forwarders that will be packaging all this capacity up and then reselling this as a service provision to, to your shippers. So your, your Apples, your Hewlett Packards, your, your Nikes, your Adidas, all these people that are using this capacity to, uh, to move cargo inside a really, really fine time frame. And um, as a result of that, you see many layers of risk. And we saw all of these, these, these sort of layers of risk exposed in, in quite dramatic fashion at the end of February, when all of a sudden you saw a uh, complete evaporation. And it was, it was very well talked about in the media, evaporation of the passenger uh, travel market. And around, um, it depends on which trade you're looking at, but around half or just under half of all cargoes are moved in the belly of passenger aircraft. And because this capacity disappeared within within a week or so, you saw the air freight capacity highly prized across many different lanes in terms of freighters. And as a result, this shot the rates up all the way up to this $11 figure on the, Shang, on the Shanghai to Europe route. 
So a massive change in the market that collapsed almost every single fixed price contract that was under, you know, your airline to forwarder or your forwarder to shipper. And all of a sudden, everyone is paying the highly volatile spot rate, which is changing week on week. So obviously for us, we've been doing this for a good two years now, just slowly educating the market and trying to incorporate risk management products. This has really put everything into focus in a very short time frame. And now everyone is sort of looking in the same direction. And I think the, the call I had this morning with one of the uh, one of these freight forwarders put it put it well. Um, the airlines have torn up the rule book. Um, so they, even they don't really know how they're going to manage things moving forward, whether they return to the old ways of doing business um, or whether they look to try and adapt using this this indexed the newly indexed market to um to leverage you know opportunities and, and manage risk in the future so that's really and what what where we come into things so um so yeah i mean that's that's, Peter, that, that's a fascinating thing to hear to me that is very very reminiscent of let's say iron ore back in the uh period of 2009 when we saw some incredibly volatile price moves in that market that led to a lot of the Chinese mills at that time defaulting on forward fixed price contracts. Uh, as you say, the rule book rather got torn up. And, and in the end, we saw by 2010, the big miners led by Vale actually switching to a, uh, an indexed pricing system, um, which was really the birth of, I think, the, the liquidity drive in the iron ore futures market. So, so it's interesting to hear that echoed right at this time uh, in the air freight market as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, as, as I say, the, the market is, is complex. It's generally quite resistant to being called um, a commodity. But I mean, it is freight, but you can deal, deal in the same sort, of, uh, same sort of mindset. And the indexes we've been looking at and working with are very reflective, especially of the Asia Pacific routes. And I think where we've had very significant progress is providing or helping provide the ability to to lock in sort of your minimum rates, but then allow allow the physical participants certainly the ability to to manage their own prices almost unilaterally in a new market. So the ability to to be a bit more flexible in how they operate, and this has always been the problem. I mean, the air freight market has always been volatile ever since the eighties, and um, you you're, you've never been in a position where you could you know, change your position halfway through a contract. And now this is really coming about. So that's that's essentially where we're seeing the most significant progress, certainly over the last month or so when everyone's come out of crisis management and they're willing to take a look down the road to see well, what's going to happen, you know, in a month's time, two months' time. And I think one of the interesting things, especially for the financial markets, which we've just sort of started incorporating this product, is a good example would be, uh, equities at the, uh, the start of the coronavirus crisis obviously crashed out. You saw the precise reverse happen in the cargo market. So the cargo market shot up exactly as the equities market went down. So a really yeah. good, I mean, you're reacting to crisis. Air freight is a very good mode that can deal with crisis globally because you're, you're dealing on a minute to minute time frame and you don't have to um, factor in, you know, port closures or any of this sort of stuff. Um, well, exactly. And it's a, it's a great product as well for people who are perhaps looking for less correlation 
to the equity market or the established commodity markets yeah. uh, and want to add something else into their portfolio too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm open to, to questions, but it's all very, very expansive, to be honest. No, I think it sounds very uh, well researched, clearly didn't wing it. And I hope the market <laughs> takes off. <laughs> there we are. And with Alex coming in with his, with Alex coming in with his, his puns, it's probably time to, to finish for this week. So thank you very much to Peter for the introduction to the air freight market. I'm sure if there's anyone out there who wants to find out more, you can uh, get in contact with him. Uh, thank you very much to the people who joined for our usual updates and to everyone out there listening. Do join us again for next week. Thank you.